And we know that we're just scratching the surface of our understanding of what even that word sacrifice means applied to you. We've never been to heaven. We've never left it to come into this world. None of us have died yet, and none of us have died the death of a cross. Lord, thank you so much for all that you were willing to leave and all that you were willing to endure here. In order for simple people like us, who you knew would be on a search for meaning and purpose and forgiveness and the truth in life and the relationship that we've been created for with you, and that when we finally come to the end of our search, there would be a way for that relationship to happen. And we thank you, Lord, for paying the price that you personally did, the price that we could never pay ourselves in order to make it possible. We bless you as your sons and daughters tonight, and we thank you, Jesus. And Father, we ask that you would speak to us from your word tonight. We thank you that this book exists in human history as we pray so often. Thank you that you desire to communicate to us. And we acknowledge before we even read a word of it that everything that is in this book is important to you and thus important to us. So continue to conform us into the image of Christ now by your Holy Spirit as we study and, your, and learn your word. And as Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified, Lord, by your truth and your word is truth. We pray that you do that and that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Book of Matthew, chapter 13 this evening. As we make our way through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and get their attention. They'll give you a Bible. It'll be marked for our passage tonight. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. In Matthew chapter 13, we have a record of 13 or, or 7 of uh, Jesus' parables. They're known as the kingdom uh, parables, the kingdom of heaven. You remember we spoke last time about the fact that there is a difference in Matthew's gospel. Sometimes the term uh, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is largely interchangeable when you run into it in other parts of the Bible. But in the uh, gospel according to Matthew, uh, there is a differentiation between the two uh, terms. The, the, uh, the title of the kingdom uh, of heaven, it refers to a professing Christianity. It, prefers, it refers to the mix of uh, the world. It refers to the mix of, Christ, uh, of true and genuine Christians and kind of the dynamic of any crowd that is found around Jesus or uh, and Jesus was constantly surrounded by crowds. We looked at the last parable, the first parable of the parables he gives here, and it was the parable of uh, the soils or the parable uh, of uh, so often called uh, the, uh, of the seed and, um, and, and the four different soils that there are, the four different hearts. And then following the giving of that parable and the interpretation of that parable to, parable to the disciples, uh, the Lord then gave a, ser a, a series of three parables that then spoke to 
um, three kind of devices that the devil would use against the kingdom of heaven, against uh, the expansion uh, of God's kingdom, Satan's opposition to the kingdom of heaven, and in the parable of the tares and the wheat. And here, anywhere you have wheat being sown, a work of God that is occurring, the devil will always come along. He will add tares among that wheat in order to confuse what Christianity is, what is genuine Christianity, and so forth, and the minds of people, and sometimes even in the minds of Christians. That was the first device that the enemy uses in opposing uh, the kingdom of heaven. And we come now to the second uh, means of opposition in the parable of the mustard seed. And uh, verse 31, another parable he put to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed into his field. Uh, which indeed is the least of all of the seeds. The mustard seed is the smallest seed of uh, the herbs. But when it is grown, the mustard plant, it, uh, it is greater than the herbs. And, uh, and in, 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 the, in the planting of a mustard uh, plant, it grows. For it to grow to maturity, it, is, it grows to a size that's far larger than the average herb. And uh, a good-sized mustard plant would be the size of this pulpit. But here in the parable, uh, this seed grows and it, be, uh, and it becomes a tree. Uh, this is something that's abnormal. This is an inordinate, a natural growth so that the birds of the air come and then nest in its uh, branches. And so this is the parable that's given. Mustard plants are more of a bush than a tree, and so this would represent on its part a uh, phenomenal, really an unnatural growth. The common uh, interpretation for this particular parable is that Jesus is communicating that the kingdom of God is going to begin very, very small and that it's going to experience tremendous growth. Ultimately, it's going to win over the whole world and at the close of the age will enjoy a great a wave of success and glory. Uh, the common interpretation of that. The reason that that can't be the proper interpretation is that Jesus, it is true that Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of heaven will begin small, it will achieve a great size, it will achieve great influence and great success, but he is also teaching that this wouldn't be accomplished through purity or through holiness or through faithfulness to God's Word, but rather through compromise. In the parable of the soils, and this is so important, we get a little bit technical here on this, but you will uh, find it very, very difficult to understand uh, the parables as a Christian unless we understand the key to uh, understanding the parables that God has given to us. In the parable of the soils, the first parable of this chapter, Jesus gave us the key to properly interpreting all of the parables. He declared more fully in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 3, verse 13, concerning that parable. He said to the disciples, Do you not understand this parable? And how then, if you don't, and they didn't, how then will you understand all of the parables? In order to properly interpret the parables, a person has to honor a law of Bible interpretation that is known as expositional constancy. This means that whenever some symbol represented in the parable uh, of the soils, whatever it represents there, it represents that in all of the other parables. 
And in the parable of the soils, the birds represented Satan in his demonic realm, coming, picking up the seed that was on the hard ground and removing it from the hard heart before the seed of the gospel and the word of God could penetrate. And the uh, birds of the air, they represent Satan, they represent the demonic realm in this parable as well. And thus Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of heaven will ultimately grow to a tremendous size, but unfortunately to such a size that the birds, that is Satan, and evil will find a place there too. So what Jesus is warning against here is false growth, growth that occurs within the body of Christ or what looks like the body of Christ through compromise, that when growth and size become more important than holiness and integrity and especially faithfulness to God's Word in a church or in the body of Christ as a whole, then Satan will take advantage of that and he will then become a part of that church or a part of that movement or denomination or non-denomination. And as you look all around the world at what calls itself Christianity, you see that this is very, very true and very true in our age. Think about all of the uh, cults and uh, uh, religious systems that claim to be Christian and to uh, have their origin in the Lord and in the Bible, but they do not. But they masquerade themselves as being uh, Christian. I think about Mormonism. Uh, in this regard. I think about Jehovah Witnesses in this regard. These are works-based religious systems that have no foundation in the Bible. And, uh, and yet they portray themselves as Christian and the average person that doesn't know their Bible and certainly non-Christians would look at them and say, well, they are Christian. They're going to be confused by that. Um, I think about much of what is found in Roman Catholicism today. And I'm not saying that Roman Catholics cannot be born again, and I'm not saying that Roman Catholics cannot be born again, and I'm not saying that Roman Catholics cannot be born again. All right, we got it. So nobody's going to race out of here. Take some people a third time to, depending on their background or how careful they're listening. I'm not saying that. There are many born-again Christians in Roman Catholicism, but they are born-again Christians not because of the doctrinal positions of Roman Catholicism officially, but in spite of it, because the salvation that is taught in Roman Catholicism is on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ and the keeping of the sacraments. You can't do that. I don't care how long you've been around, how much highly people think about you, you cannot say that Jesus' death upon the cross is the full and satisfying payment for our sins is not enough, and that we can add anything to that salvation, even the keeping of something that is uh, holy in the eyes of man, such as sacraments. You look at Roman Catholicism in terms of every time like a pope dies, and they're going to bring in a new pope, and then you see all of the cardinals and all, all of the priests and all of the um, outfits and the miters and the hats and the robes and the everything. And can you see Jesus? Um, uh, and, and please, I'm not, I'm not saying this to be funny. Can you see him ever wearing something like that? I mean, he was fighting this stuff with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This was their whole trip, this whole thing. We're the holy people and you're not the holy people. And yet, here it is so much. I don't say all of it, but so much within Roman Catholicism. It, is, it, it, it appears to be Christian, bib, biblic, biblically based, 
and it is not. But before some of you get upset and uh, stomp out the room uh, as soon as I look down again in the Bible, um, we won't leave the Protestants alone on this thing, thing either. You think about how much of what is in liberal Protestantism that professes to be uh, Christian, and they don't believe in the authority of the Bible, they don't believe in the virgin birth, uh, they don't believe in the deity of Christ, they don't believe in even the resurrection of Christ, and so many of things that they don't believe in. And yet, they come under, they need the umbrella of legitimacy. I mean, if they just came out and said, hey, we're starting a new religion, and we don't believe in all these things, but we believe in all of these things, they couldn't attract a crowd. Or in business, if you want to, if you want to add legitimacy to your name and your brand because it's illegitimate and it doesn't deserve any legitimacy, you associate yourself with, you know, Dow Chemical or IBM or Apple or someone. I mean, you start to use yourself in the same breath because then people will give you kind of the benefit of the doubt on things. And, uh, and so here they come in. They gut Christianity. They undermine the foundation of what makes Christianity Christianity and powerful unto salvation. And, and yet if they had their way, there would be no salvation found in the Jesus that they leave you with or the Bible that they leave you with. So you see the idea all around us as Christians you have so much that professes to be Christian, it looks like it's Christian outwardly, but it simply is not. And so here you have this false growth that occurs that comes through compromise, and it comes through compromising the standard of God's Word, and thus, as a result of that, you start to compromise God's Word and a stand for God's Word, and pretty soon you're going to end up accommodating false teaching and false teachers, and now you've got uh, the devil, you've got these birds that are uh, in the tree with everything else. And so Jesus is telling us, his disciples, don't be surprised about this when this happens, and uh, just stay busy about your business. Now, you might look at that and you say, that doesn't discourage me in the least. I'm, I just look at it, and I leave it in God's hands, and I go on about my business. And the Lord basically told us to do that in the tares and the wheat. Uh, you remember the uh, tares planted among the wheat. The servants of the master come to him and say, should we tear the tares out? And, uh, and, and by the time it becomes apparent that uh, a tear is not a wheat, but it's illegitimate, and you have that kind of growth above the ground, now the roots are completely interconnected under the ground, and if you go to pull them out, you're going to pull out a lot of good stuff too. And so there's a place for apologetics, an important part, place uh, in, uh, for apologetics in the body of Christ and so forth, and a defense of the faith and all of these things. But I think for a person like me, and it's a struggle really for every pastor, and that is how much of our time do we give looking at the Bible, talking to Christians as if they are Christians, and uh, ministering the Word of God, ministering the Word in its, in its beauty and in its, uh, in, in its truth to those who aren't Christians, and you, you lay all of this out because on a weekly basis there isn't a pastor in the United States of America that couldn't be fighting a war with all of the birds that are in uh, the, the tree that is the abnormal 
growth of the mustard seed. But you fight that battle. You bring the body of Christ who's just wanting to grow in their relationship with the Lord into that battle. And every time going to church is now bashing the Mormons and uh, fighting against the Catholics and liberal Protestantism and all. And that gets old pretty quick. So enough to know that this is what's going on. Everything that calls itself Christian is not necessarily Christian, and you've got to look at that. I go back to it may not be a discouragement to some of us in this room, but it can be a discouragement to me as a pastor. And as you see more and more accommodation of false doctrine, I think of positive confession doctrine. I just think about so, so many goofy things that are taught in, uh, it's, in salvation isn't in the balance related to it, health and wealth and all this, this kind of thing. But there's so much false doctrine that is floating around today that it, it can be discouraging to a pastor, someone who loves the Lord, called the minister of the Word, and to look at it and say, uh, wow, I mean, am, again, am I making any kind of a difference in the world? What's the use of having Sunday night services and going through the Word? And yet Jesus comes in and says that. That's not your business. That's not your worry. I'm telling you in this parable, this is going to be a part of the deal, but it doesn't mean that you stop doing what you're doing. And so there's that discernment that we have. And going through the Scriptures as a body here uh, tonight for you to realize and to have that built into your Christian life, when you look at what professes to be Christianity, it may or it may not be. And, uh, and we're not going to fix that, and we're not going to solve that ahead of its time. God will take care of it, which is a parable we'll get to in just a, a moment or so. And so this is uh, Satan opposes the genuine work of the Lord in the world, by, uh, number one, by planting false Christians among that work, encouraging false growth through compromise and false doctrine. And then finally, the next parable, the parable of the leaven, by introducing false doctrine. And it's very, very close to the parable of the mustard seed. And another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and she hid in three measures of meal until all all of it was leavened. And so here you have the kingdom of heaven. It's like leaven. The woman puts it in into the meal. Leaven, of course, is going to spread a little bit of leaven put into a lump. It's going to leaven the whole lump. That's exactly what uh, yeast does. And the common interpretation of this particular parable is that the leaven represents the gospel, that it's going to be preached throughout all of the world until everyone is saved or the whole world is impacted for Christ, so to speak. And uh, since a, a little bit of leaven or yeast placed in a large amount of dough would permeate it entirely, and that's what's going to happen. The whole world is going to be effectively reached with the gospel. But again, that would be inconsistent with what, uh, how it would have been heard by uh, the hearers. The proper interpretation of the parable, it's a little uh, less um, triumphant, you know, this side of heaven, uh, than this other interpretation the proper interpretation for the parable and why is that throughout the Bible, leaven is spoken consistently. Uh, it is used as a symbol of corruption. It is used as a symbol of evil. Even Jesus, when he spoke to the disciples, he said, Beware of the leaven of the Sadducees and of the Pharisees and of the Herodians. He used it negatively because that's how the Jewish mind understood it in the light uh, of the Old Testament and of their culture. It was a picture of sin. Sin gets introduced into a situation, and it will not stop 
until it permeates the whole uh, group unless uh, somebody brings it to a stop. And so uh, because the meal is made up of wheat, we go back to the parable of the soil. Uh, the wheat represents the Word of God in that parable of the soils, and this appears here then to represent the corruption of the Word of God uh, by leaven, by false doctrine, and uh, again, the amount of false doctrine within what professes to be Christianity today and to represent Christ in the world is staggering. It's, it is uh, really massive uh, in, uh, in size today, the false doctrine and the pressure that is on, uh, in, uh, on leaders, on you as members of the body of Christ in, in order to, you know, accommodate false doctrine and accommodate things that, sins that are uh, clearly prohibited uh, in the Word of God. It is important to Jesus that we never assume uh, as Christians that all that is being taught and practiced under the banner of Christ or Christianity is of God. But to, believe, to realize that we should be aware of the fact that a fair portion of it has its origin in the devil. We do not freak out, but it makes us realize we need to be discerning about these things, and we need to be protective related to our own walk with God, protective to what we allow into our hearts and into our minds in terms of, of input. And again, the three ways that the devil successfully disrupts the advancement of the true kingdom of God by infiltrating any good thing that God is doing, by planting false Christians within it, and then representing them as Christians and creating confusion for Christians and non-Christians alike, encouraging false growth through compromise, and introducing false doctrine into the kingdom of uh, God. I know uh, quite a number of pastors personally who are done with the subjects uh, like um, uh, gay marriage. They're done with subjects like um, uh, homosexuality. They're just not going to address the subject. It's too, um, it's too hot of a button. Uh, they feel as if they, if they address it, they're just going to alienate any non-Christians who come into the room and so forth. And they look at it and they say, that the culture war on that front has been completely lost. Let's just forget about it and go on to just preach the good news and, and so forth and, you know, kind of turn, uh, let's, let's not make this a, a, a fight or something that we're consistently going to be uh, dealing with or even inconsistently uh, dealing with that. And uh, when that happens, and this is one of the great things about going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is you hit everything in the Bible and you hit it in the proportion to which you hit it. I have no interest in talking about sexual sin on a weekly basis or on a whatever basis, whether that uh, sexual immorality is uh, homosexual, homosexual sexual immorality or heterosexual immorality. But when it comes up in the Bible, I'm happy to speak about it. And one of the safe things about going through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is you not only hit everything that's in the Bible, but you hit it in the proportion in which it is in the Bible. And you can't have a better proportion than that. But there is tremendous pressure, I believe, upon churches and upon church leaders today to soften things, to ignore things, to be quiet about things in order to accommodate growth so as to not offend people and so the church will continue to grow and the church will continue to give. 
And uh, this is a great mistake, but it is a pressure that I think pastors in the United States of America are feeling like never before in our history because the push is so strong related to uh, transgender issues, related to uh, homosexual issues, and so forth. We are being put in a corner. We are being caricaturized before the world. We are being made into the intolerant bad guys, but that's just the way that it goes. And uh, you can listen to a sermon I did on homosexuality a number of years ago related to whether uh, what God is saying is the loving thing or whether what the culture is saying is the loving thing. The average homosexual in the United States of America, I think the life expectancy of a non-homosexual man in the United States of America is uh, something like 76 or something like that. Um, the average life expectancy for a homosexual male in the United States of America is 30 to 40 years less. I mean, we've got a lifestyle that is carving a massive portion out of people's lives because it is not the way to live. And is God such a terrible person uh, that he would call on someone to turn away from something that is so detrimental to them, not only physically, but also emotionally and mentally and spiritually as well. God loves us. He shoots straight with us. And, and this idea that I'm now going to hide these things from people, if I'm doing that, I'm hiding truth from them. I'm hiding salt from them. I'm hiding healing from them. But this kind of thing, there's a lot of pressure to do this. Got to keep the numbers up. And so we have to stop talking about sin. We have to stop talking about the cross. We have to stop talking about God in the masculine pronouns. And we've got to make them uh, uh, neutral in terms of the pronouns that are used and so forth. All of this stuff that's going on, it's insane. Don't let it surprise you. Don't let it discourage you. And certainly don't let it stop you doing what God has called you to do for His kingdom. One of the things that is encouraging to me in the current ministry environment of the United States of America, where we're kind of getting closed in on a little bit, is I remember what I think it was Ravenhill speaking about um, uh, revival, and he talked about the fact that uh, in a revival, God can flex his strong right arm, and in five minutes, he can undo a hundred years of the damage uh, that Satan has done and, uh, and man has done in the world. And so all of this can uh, turn in a moment. So you uh, go out, keep living your life, keep bringing forth the 30, 60, 100-fold in the midst of not only the uh, normal madness, the physical madness of the world, but the spiritual madness of sometimes even within Christianity. And uh, you got to do that in the middle of it. You just keep being uh, faithful. And then all of these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter uh, things kept secret from the foundation of the world. And then we skip over to... Uh, verse 44, to continue in these parables, the parable of the hidden treasure. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he hid. So, wow, here he is. He's a farmer, and he's doing something in the field, and he finds hidden treasure. I mean, come on. Is that a little boy's dream? Uh, it's, I don't know what, what girls do with that, but you're always on the lookout for treasure. 
Arr! And uh, so here he is. He, it's like treasure in a field. The man found it. He hid the treasure. And then for the joy over this uh, discovery and, and this treasure, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys uh, the field. Now, uh, in these final three parables, three more things that Jesus wants us to be aware of as we continue to serve God and our generation in, in human history here. These three parables here are not spoken to the multitude. They are spoken uh, to the disciples alone. And we see that in verse 36. So here's the parable with the man, finds the treasure, the joy, and he goes and he sells all that he has in order to buy the field that contains the treasure. The most common interpretation of this is that we, uh, uh, that as sinners, we are the man that the treasure is Jesus, that we need to give up all that we possess, everything that is valuable to us, we need to be willing to give up all of it in order to gain Him and to be saved. Now, the problem with that interpretation, and there's some very major problems with that view, is that it violates everything that the Bible says uh, and teaches about salvation. Uh, salvation isn't something we sell everything we have to buy or to obtain. Salvation is a free gift. This can't be talking about salvation. Can't be talking about it uh, at all. Jesus is not for sale. Uh, what comes from his, Him is not for sale. Salvation is not uh, for sale. We cannot buy that. If we pooled all of our resources in <clears throat> that we all possess in this room tonight and we put it all together in a heap in the middle of the room, we couldn't buy one person's salvation in this room. And so it can't be talking about that. The Bible says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself but a gift of God. Salvation is not of works, lest any man uh, should boast. The proper interpretation, and again we remember the parable of the soils in this. Jesus gave that as the key to understanding all of the parables uh, here. And so because of that, it must mean that since the man represented Jesus in the parable of the soils, that it represents him too in this parable. And since the field represents the world in the parable of the soils, then it represents the world here. And what is the treasure that Jesus purchased the world in order to get? The church, the body of Christ. Christians. And everywhere you want to turn in the New Testament, it speaks about us as Christians as being what? As being a purchased possession, as being a purchased people. Notice the price that he paid in order to purchase us and to make us his people. It tells us that he paid all that he had. Well, what does that mean? It speaks of the fact that he left all of the glory of heaven in order to come into the world, the significant price that he paid in leaving that glory in his incarnation to even come into the world. And then it also speaks that all that he had of, the, of his physical death upon the cross for us, his burial and his resurrection. Jesus gave everything that he had in order to provide us with salvation. And then why did he do that? The parable tells us, and it's significant for the joy over the treasure. So you look at these parables, and Jesus is speaking these parables, and uh, why aren't they discouraging him? When he knows what he died on the cross, was buried, and rose again on the third day to produce this tremendous organism called the body of Christ, 
this, this tremendous uh, family of his, and yet he knows all of these things are going to happen, be misrepresented, there's going to be compromise that's going to be attempted to introduce, and why does he even uh, put up with all of the aggravation of all of it? The disrespect of the hearers toward his word and and his, the misrepresentation of him and so forth, and the reason is for the joy of saving you. For the joy of saving you, and I think about that. And the key word in the, to me in this parable in terms of like a Selah moment, a, uh, an absorption of it into our spirit is the word joy. We think about the joy that his salvation has brought into our lives. But here Jesus himself teaches that where we learn of the joy that our salvation brings to him. Well, I would hardly believe it, except that Jesus said it here. And he really, really does love our souls. He was the lover of our souls long before we ever became a lover of our own soul. And so the joy that it produced for him. You think about God a little bit, and you think about here he is, he, with a word he can create the heavens and the earth and, and all that we see all around us on a daily basis, um, the creation, the interconnectedness of the different systems of the world, the weather and patterns and farming and all of this. And, and all of that speaks of God's uh, design. It speaks of God's power. Uh, David brings that out in one of his psalms. It, it speaks of his wisdom, but it doesn't express his heart as fully as he would want to express it. And how does God get the opportunity to express the greatness of his heart and his love except in the sending of his son to die on the cross to provide salvation for someone like me and you. And without the opportunity to do that in all of the mystery that is human history and God and all of his foreknowledge, the beauty of the greatness of his heart, of his love, of his joy at the salvation of a sinner would be completely unknown to us. We would look around and say, yes, I have a great appreciation for his wisdom, his design for his power, but I don't know anything about his love. It was this joy that he experienced in providing us with salvation that allows us to see the heart of God, the most fully, this side of, of glory, the heart of love that he has, and Jesus coming, paying the price that he did in order that we might be saved and that we might be forgiven. And then the pearl of great price, this parable, verse 45, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. And so uh, the parable of the hidden treasure, kind of a farming uh, uh, illustration and uh, parable. Here you've got a merchant man. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. He's seeking beautiful pearls who when he had found uh, one pearl of great price, this is the pearl to end all pearls, 
He went and he sold uh, all that he had, and he bought it. Again, the common interpretation is that the pearl represents Jesus in his salvation. We need to give up everything that we have, no matter how valuable, in order to gain that salvation from him and be saved. But again, it violates the fact that salvation is a free gift. There's nothing we can give in order to merit it or in order to uh, receive it. And the proper interpretation, very similar to the parable of the hidden treasure, again, it's speaking of the price that Jesus was willing to pay uh, to buy the pearl, that is to redeem the church, to redeem Christians, and to bring us into his uh, family and to express his love toward us. And then in verse 47, the parable of the dragnet. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet, which was, as not a TV show for some of you. In uh, the Sea of Galilee and the various oceans of the world, and I remember seeing this in an island uh, called Rameshwaram in India one time, and uh, they take and they, they call dragnets dragnets because they drag them behind the boat, and when you drag a net behind a boat, you're liable to catch not only who knows what kind of fish, a fish that you can sell and are valuable, and other fish that are worthless, but you can pick up all kinds of junk. And they would pull these, uh, dr they would do the drag nets and they would bring the boats in. I remember at Rameshwaram, and as soon as they pulled those nets right onto the dock and they opened them up, a flurry of people would then begin to surround it. And all of the stuff that was junk and worthless got thrown over here in this direction. It was like a science, and then everything was valuable got put over in this direction. And the reason is it has to be a sorting after you're going to collect. By by way of a dragnet, a sorting afterwards between what is valuable and what isn't valuable, what you wanted to catch and what you didn't want to catch. And so the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and they sat down and they gathered the good into vessels, but they threw the bad away. And so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and separate the wicked from the just. We don't have to worry about doing that today. God will take care of it at the end of the age and cast them into a furnace of fire, talking about Gehenna, eternal judgment, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The wailing speaking of the emotional torment of Gehenna and the gnashing of teeth speaking of the physical torment of, uh, uh, of Gehenna. I don't want anything to do with either of them, and I won't. Thank you, Lord. Uh, tonight. And Jesus said to them, have you understood these things? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And so here is the parable uh, of uh, the dragnet, and Jesus gave that uh, interpretation that at the end of the age a judgment is coming in which the angels are going to then separate the wicked from the just, and at that time the wicked are going to be cast into a furnace of fire, and there will be the wailing and gnashing of teeth. And and the idea is this Jesus is talking about a lot of things that are going to be there that would warrant judgment and all. Judgment is coming. There's going to be a great divine judgment coming in human history. There'll be a great and final separation that is coming to this mixed thing that we live in the middle of now, uh, you know, called the kingdom 
uh, of heaven. And one day all of the false doctrine, all of the false teachers, all of uh, the compromise and the hypocrisy and the tares that are among the wheat and the hard-hearted and the bad and the wicked and so forth, all of it will be separated away. It will all come to an end. And uh, righteousness will be revealed at that point in time and it will be rewarded. God's going to clean it all up in the end. And sometimes it can look like evil's going to win. And sometimes it look even within professing Christianity, it can look like, you know, purity of doctrine is going to fall by the wayside. We may not even be seeing the worst of it yet in the world. Uh, the Bible talks about the fact that the day is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. Uh, they just simply will not put up with sound teaching or measured, careful teaching of the Word of God and what God says. They're going to deflect their ears from that teaching, and they're going to heap up false teachers that want to tell them what they want to hear, and then uh, they will become uh, the popular ones. This will become more and more uh, the measure of things as the uh, return of the Lord uh, draws near and near. And uh, I think it's very, very important, and I don't want to belabor the point, but I want to make the point is so much Christianity today in the United States is becoming man-centered. The songs are about the people and not about God. The songs are chosen in order to produce an emotional experience in people without any concern about how God will receive them or what he wants to hear from his people on that given day, increasingly teaching. Sometimes you listen to it and you think that teaching was put together with a massive and a majority concern for the people that would be listening to it and a minority concern over what uh, God wanted to say to that audience. The whole idea, the whole thing is about, it's the culture again, I, me, my, coming into the church until it's about making people feel good, and they become very, very familiar with their problems, very familiar with their circumstances, very familiar with all of their feelings, very familiar with everything and everyone except God. And this is the world's worst time for this thing, thing to be happening, because as we understand our Bible, things are going to get worse and worse as the time of Jesus' return begins to draw clear, and we're going to need a foundation in God like we've never been before. What's happening right now is so dangerous, it makes me want to shout. And you, it's too big for it to be turned back now. You have to spot it for yourself and to look and say, is this sermon about God supremely and me secondarily, how it applies to me? Do I have the sense in this service that this is about glorifying God or pleasing a group of people so they will come again the next week? Watch out. Watch out for it today because this is a tidal wave. In my humble opinion, I love the body of Christ. I don't, you know I don't talk about this kind of stuff very often. Probably should talk about it more often than I do. But it's an hour and it's a time in which to really, 
really be careful in the midst of all of this, but in the middle of it to realize, hey, things are going to be going on. We can't police it. We can't change it. And, and, uh, and I don't want to be judging in an unhealthy way towards other people and all, but I've got to know, can I have a witness of the Holy Spirit here? Is this about God? Am I growing in my knowledge of God? Am I growing in my understanding and appreciation of Him? You can't worship who you don't know, and you can't trust who you don't know. You see, it's, just a, it's a time bomb that's just going to be set off when the world, be, some next catastrophe occurs, and the Christians go running, scurrying for a foundation in our lives that never got laid at a time when it needed to be laid. Well, some of you are happy with that, and some of you aren't. Um, but uh, I've said it, and I'm, and I'm glad that I have. But the main thing is, is that God wins in the end, and he takes care of all of it, and he's quite aware of what's going on all around us today. And then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasury things new and old. So they, he said, Do you understand all these parables? They said, Yes. Uh, a little iffy, I think, uh, for me on that, but they did. And then Jesus responded by talking to them about the responsibility of understanding these parables that he had spoken to them. They were well-versed in the Old Testament. Here now he is giving them kind of New Testament revelation, and he talks about the fact that in light of their understanding of the Old Testament, this new revelation that he's given them about the, the new covenant is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things old and new. So you get like this, uh, let's say you've got a designer who designs homes and furnishes homes and all, and he or she has got more furniture than, uh, than, than they can use in one home. So they will typically pick out some old pieces and some contemporary pieces, and they put this eclectic mix of things together, and uh, all of it is very complementary. It's beautiful. It presents beautifully. And so Jesus is telling them, here you have something now in any conversation that you're going to get into related to me. You have a responsibility as a scribe, someone who knows the Word of God, to now take the things of the Old Testament, mix them now with the beauty of the things of the New Testament. They are not contradictory to one another. They are complementary. And then share these things in a way that's an edifying and a blessing uh, to other people. Now, it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. And uh, when he had come to his own country, that is the Galilee area, uh, and, uh, and specifically to Nazareth, where he had been raised for 30 years of his life as a carpenter there in, in Nazareth and in the north of Israel. And uh, so he came to his own country. He goes into the synagogue, and he taught them in their synagogue. And so they were astonished at his teaching, and they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works. So here comes Jesus, comes back to his hometown, and uh, this is where he's been raised. These are all of the uh, neighbors, all of the merchants, all of the everybody. They knew him by name, and he, and he comes back. He's doing all of these miracles. Gigantic crowds are following him. They've heard about it. He comes into the synagogue. He begins to teach them. They're astonished at the doctrine that he's teaching, also marveling at the miracles that he's able to do. And then they ask the question of themselves. They're listening. I mean, they're astonished. They should be astonished. I'm astonished at the teaching of Jesus. 
and His miracles. And they said, and, and then this, this great kind of dark cloud comes over everything. And they said, is this not the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph's boy? And is not his mother called Mary? I mean, didn't he grow up here? And his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and, and his sisters, are they not all here with us? When did this man get all of these things? Where did he learn all of this stuff? And not Nazareth, they knew that. And so it says they were offended or they were scandalized literally at him. And uh, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So Jesus comes back to his hometown. He is the talk of the entire nation. He gives them a demonstration of his wisdom and of his power there in the synagogue. And uh, they have this uh, astonishment, which is completely appropriate. But at the same time, they were offended. And you ask yourself, what? what about Jesus here is it that could offend them in this scene? What could offend them in the light of his life and his teaching and his miracles and his reputation? And what offended them is revealed to us in the passage, and that is it was their familiarity with him or a, um, a familiarity with him, an understanding of him that they thought they had but they didn't have. They rejected him because they felt he was too familiar with them, to them. And this is one of, they said, we know his father, we know his mother, we know his brothers, we know his sisters. He can't be anything great. Uh, he grew up in this town. We saw him grow up in this town. And because of their great familiarity with him on a physical level, they just dismissed him. There's no possibility that he could be the great one that he is. And I think this is one of the challenges that people face when growing up in the United States with its Christian heritage, and I'm thankful for the Christian heritage of the United States of America. And it's certainly a challenge that Christians face when they have been raised in a Christian home. And so often this kind of person will reject Jesus, and they will run after every kind of spiritual and philosophical nonsense that's going on in the world. And the reason that they do so is because they want to follow someone who is different, someone who is exotic, someone who is different from, you know, what the majority of the people worship, you know, in the culture of the United States of America. And after all, Jesus has so many followers here still in the United States of America. And they think to themselves, anyone can be a Christian. Anyone can be a Christian. You go to a party, you go to school, you go to work, you tell somebody you're a Christian and you're going to be met with a collective yawn. Dime a dozen. But you show up at work and declare to everyone that you're a Rastafarian now. A Rastafarian. A Rasta what? A Rastafarian. Or whatever name you want to put to things. And now you've got everybody's attention. That's different. That's a wow thing. 
tell me a little bit about, you know, more about all of that. And, and then when I tell people about the guru or whoever and the beliefs or whatever and any of this, so much of this stuff that goes on in the world, then they begin to think, man, that person, they are, they're their own man. Somebody light up a cigarette for them, man, and find a horse for them. That's a Marlboro man or something, you know. And, and uh, that, that person knows how to think for themselves. They're not part of the crowd, part of the, you know, the herd or anything like that. And so I'm going to go listen to them. They're so independent and they're so cool and everything. And, and I think I've got a few questions to ask them. And people like the attention of being a part of something that's obscure, something that is odd. And so often people reject when they come from a Christian background, and especially if they haven't been born again in their Christian home, but they've been raised in a Christian home, and they think that they know Jesus and they know Christianity just by virtue of having been around it all their life. And you don't even begin to understand Christianity or to know Christianity until you begin the relationship with Christ. And then everything else opens up. It is on the outside looking in until that happens. And then everything opens up in technicolor. All my illustrations are dating you tonight. But it's the truth related to that. And they think they know everything about them because they've watched all of this through some kind of a glazed window on the outside looking in. And they know nothing about them at all. And thankfully, so many who reject Jesus in their youth and in their young adult lives, they're stumbled by familiarity. As they say, oh, he's old hat, he's common, he's what, Christianity. Christianity's got a bad name today, and I'm going to go become a part of something else. And they go chase every exotic teaching or experience that the world has to offer. And then ultimately, so often, they come back to Jesus. And they come back to the salvation that was sitting right under their nose all the time. And then they become very, very thankful followers of him after they've been beaten up by some other exotic religious system or some other exotic kind of philosophy. I remember one time in a, a very kind of personal picture of this whole thing, one of the young men that I've known and um, through the years, and he was raised in a wonderful, wonderful Christian home. And uh, ultimately, he reached adult life, and Christianity wasn't born again. Christianity was this kind of thing that, you know, he'd been grown up around and all very, very familiar with, and he wanted to, you know, he wanted to, uh, f you know, find something again a little bit more exotic. And so he goes off to India, and he explores all of the Eastern uh, religions and all of this kind of stuff. And as you go to find out about the gods behind, you know, the Hindu religion and a lot of the Eastern religions and all, if, if you've got any kind of an imagination, it'll run, you'll run terrified in the other direction. You can never please these gods. You can never please them. And there are so many of them. There are tens of thousands of them that cannot be pleased and demand to be pleased every day. And he went out and he got his fill of all of this. And he came back to the Lord and ultimately became a missionary. And he speaks about the fact how the truth was right under his nose all of his life. But he sniffed at it because it was so familiar and he wanted to try something different. I wonder how many of us in this room t tonight 
I won't ask for a show of hands or have you stand or anything like that. But that's your testimony and your story too. It was too common, too familiar, too vanilla, too, you know, common within the culture, and you went off. And then one day, it was a part of your journey and a necessary part of your journey to coming to know Christ. And you went out, and you thought you knew him, and you didn't know him, and you thought you knew what the world was about, and you thought you knew what the philosophies of man would offer and all. And then when all of it collapsed, there's a ruin in front of your eyes, and there's no hope in your heart. There's no hope in your mind. There's regret that fills your heart. And there's Jesus just waiting for us. And we give our life to him, and then finally we see him for who he is. And Jesus spoke to them of this offense that they had toward him, and he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own household. A prophet receives honor everywhere else, it seems, except uh, in his own household. And why is a prophet not honored in his own household? Familiarity. It's just dad. It's just mom. It's just sis. It's just brother. And there's this familiarity, and because of the familiarity, there is a failure to take seriously and appreciate the wisdom that they're imparting into our lives. I mean, what mother, what parent doesn't understand a prophet is not without honor except in his own house? Isn't it a crazy thing? It's such a thankless job. It's a good thing we get rewarded by God for our parenting, raising children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and not by our children, and not certainly by other people. But so often here you are, you raise a child, and you invest mountains of time, mountains of effort, mountains of energy into their life and all, teaching them right and wrong. And this is what the Bible says, and this is why it's loving, and this is why it's wise. And we invest our lives in this way in their life, and, you know, we drive it home over and over and over and over again. And then they'll, they go to youth group, and they hear Pastor Haji say something, and then they come in the door at the end of the night, and they say, Pastor Haji said such and such. And it's a truth you've told them a thousand times. <laughs> and yet it was somebody else saying it now that the light goes on. And you say, Lord, I am so thankful that you know what I did and how many times they should have heard it ahead of Pastor Haji or anybody else that it might be in an illustration. And we come to accept it. Why? Because concerning people that we love and we care about, uh, all we care about is that ultimately that they hear the truth and that they walk in the truth. But so often it will be somebody else that they will listen to that truth through and they will hear it through that vessel and not through us. And again, it's this issue of familiarity. They think they know us too well and they are around us so much and sometimes it takes another voice to speak into their life and for them to get it. Praise the Lord for all of the voices for God in the world and in the body of Christ. Let's stand together. Let's have the worship team come forward and we'll close tonight in prayer.